Welcome to season three of the Beyond Capital podcast. People always ask me, what is the secret sauce to marrying profit with purpose? We're back for another season to bring you the stories of successful leaders that are building and scaling purpose-driven businesses. I'm Eva Yazari, general partner of Beyond Capital Ventures. And I'm Ed Stevens, CEO of Scoot. Together, Eva and I have built and invested in businesses worth millions. We want to show you how conscious leadership translates impact in all facets of a business and how it can show up in a company's operations, product, and culture, sometimes unexpectedly. Whether you're a leader of a company, team, household, or just yourself, we hope you walk away knowing the possibilities of impact for you and feeling inspired to take action every day. This is the Beyond Capital Podcast. Today's special guest is us. <laughs> Woo! Hey, Ed. <laughs> it's going to be a great episode, everyone. We're going to catch up on what Eva and I have been working on, what some of the trends we're seeing. Um, it's really been one of the most exciting years of my career. I don't know about you. Every year is better than the last. I know. Isn't that amazing? I think it's a blessing. It's, I'm absolutely grateful for it every day. You're making it happen, though. That's true. So are you. It's great to watch. All right. So where are we starting? Both of us are on different sides of the coin. In fact, you're, you're on both sides of this coin of the founder-investor relationship. And actually, I'm probably a, a founder, quote unquote, starting a fund as well. But what we wanted to explore today is in 2023, in the world where, is it, where it sits today, what influences a strong founder-investor relationship? What are the key ingredients for success? Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's almost like no perfect formula. (laughs) Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, this podcast episode will be six hours and 25 (laughs) minutes long. Yeah, well, we'll break break the Tim Ferriss uh, (laughs) record. Yeah. Let's start here. What are three words that come to your mind when you think of a strong founder investor partnership? Well, alignment, Mm -hmm. I think, is the most important one on the outcome for the business. Like, what yeah. are you trying to build? And I always use the coffee shop example. You know, you, you say you want to start a coffee shop. That's great. You want to get an investor. That's great. Now, there's two different kinds of coffee shop you can start. You can start one that's going to be a boutique in your town and it's going to be wonderful and it's just going to be a small, incredible business. Or you could try to, like, take out Starbucks, mm-hmm. right? And obviously, the investor that's going to be interested in one or the other of those journeys is going to be quite a bit different. And so that's like how I like to illustrate that alignment with an investor is where are you going? How big is this thing going to be versus the, uh, the market? That's a great anecdote. That's a great analogy. Are there any other words? I was going to say responsiveness. Mm, that's a good one. You know, because I think gamesmanship and power play dynamics... Mm are um, drags on value creation. For sure. It gets in the way of solving problems and figuring out what to do in, in stressful or difficult situations. And, you know, if somebody is responsive, they typically are a pretty good person to do business with. They're not playing games with you. So that was the second. Do you have one? I have three. And they are trust, support, and compassion. And these are coming maybe more from investor to founder. And I think, <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, cause I, I, but I also think that founders 
should have a healthy dose of trust. And kind of what you said before, Ed, about these power dynamics, the game playing, it does get in the way of value creation. But those are the traditional ways of thinking about investor, investee relationships. You know, I have the money, you need it, and you're going to do what I say. And end of story. Sure, you're going to grind it out and make money for me, but I'm going to push that goal of just having a return, you know, till the end and exhaust you in the process. That is a bit of an, the old school kind of mindset and formula. And I think now where we are with perhaps more tools, more revelations at Esalen, the Hoffman process, which I just did, we've got a lot more in our toolbox to realize that these relationships are partnerships, or I mentioned partnership in the question. Yeah. And that really matters. And it's something that crosses a, my entire portfolio as well. It is a marriage. To, yes. You know, hard to get out of. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, <laughs> hard to get out of easily. <laughs> well said. You know, so think it over. Are there any other things that you think need to be changed necessarily? about you know, how investors relate to companies or are there any unique things that you've done? It's easy to throw a, a, a platitude or a policy or a rule of thumb on this kind of thing, but so much of it is individual. You know, the, the different types of people who want to do business with each other and the type of business that you're talking about. You know, if it's a business like software, like the business I'm in, you know, it's an intangible and you're doing value creation from zero. There's, you know, there's nothing there other than the intellectual property of the company. But if you're talking about buying a building together, you know, the building is there and there really is no quick way to destroy the value of a building. It's, it's going to be there no matter what the relationship between the investor and the, and the founder is. So I think real estate and hard assets have a different dynamic than a business with like a lot of intellectual property or a lot of innovation or invention that has to happen. I think it's so personal, but man, you got to really tool for the long term because it just takes so much longer typically. And there's so many more ups and downs in the road that yeah, trust, mm -hmm. compassion. What was your third one? Support. Oh yeah. Support. Yeah. Being supportive. The way I think about it, my two most important stakeholders are my founders in the portfolio and my investors. And of course I would, you know, if I could squeeze in the third, it's, it's definitely the team. My team is kind of all in this together. And I think we all would agree that we work for the investors and we work for the founders. So when they need support, we scramble to make it happen for them, whether it's doing the work ourselves, which we've done before, or finding them the right resources, or helping them think through the right strategy, or just being a shoulder to cry on. I think the hardest thing for an investor to know is when they should get involved, mm -hmm. you know, because I've had so many times when an investor of mine has thrown a suggestion or a connection or, you know, an idea my way, game changer. You could count up dozens of those in in, uh, in any of our startup stories and, and those investors are making a huge difference along the way. So usually the, the investor's input is very valuable, but sometimes it just comes at a really bad time. Sure. You know, you just cannot process it or deal with it. And, you know, so knowing as an investor when you're, when you need to let the team run with something and fail on their own rather than like try to 
help them avoid failures. It's tricky. Yeah. I mean, that's why I also have trust in the founders that I've invested in because I trust them at any given time to execute. And there is, it's truly an art and not a science to say, have you thought about this? Or can I introduce you to that person? And frankly, the support that we provide at our fund is probably way less on the strategy ideation side and, you know, making specific introductions because you're right. Many of them work out extremely well, particularly if you have domain expertise, but a lot of them might not. And they could be a waste of that founder's time. And we're constantly aware of founder's time. So what we try to take off their plates are just Tam Sam Sam analysis for their next round, building financial models or like very discrete challenges around cash conversion cycles and how we can help model that out so the business can be much more capital efficient. Now, wait. So when you're investing in companies, you typically take a board seat, right? Yes, or an observer seat. But we're very active even if we're not on the board. Okay. So when you're in the boardroom and how many portfolio companies do you have now? In fund two, eight. Okay. So you have eight. Mm-hmm. And have you ever gotten a situation in that fund or another one where the founders are getting really defensive when suggestions are being directed towards them? Of course. And what do you do when they get defensive? Take a pause. Listen. I think if you run at somebody who is defensive or feeling angry or tired, it's never going to work. So helping them get out of their own feeling of whatever it may be, resentment, fatigue, helping them move up to a, a higher, higher level view is probably the best thing that can be done. And sometimes that is suggesting that they get a coach and we will pay for a portion of that as well. You know, one time I remember I was at a board meeting. This was for my first company. And, you know, when you're a founder, you are, you get very tough. You learn that you defend your, your vision at every turn. You know, people are constantly attacking your vision. Customers are telling you that they're not sure they need your product or investors are rejecting you, telling you they don't think that the world needs your product or, you know, on and on and on. You kind of get into this mode where you're, you're just used to constantly shield and sword you know, I'm in battle mode when I wake up and I'm in battle mode until I go to sleep. And you get in that boardroom and it's kind of the same thing. And, and these, these investors who actually do believe in your vision start throwing you some questions, suggestions, whatever they are, and you're saying, and then you get into that defensive mode. And so I actually think, here's a tip for all of you out there. This uh, really wise board member after this board meeting where I was just defending, 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 he took me aside this was a guy who I ended up really respecting a lot. He took me aside and he said, Ed, you know, we're, you know, sometimes the right answer to a, um, to a board member suggesting something is just to say, oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. And write it down on a piece of paper and don't, you know, don't feel like you have to explain why you're not doing that yeah. already, right? Like, oh, well, we're not doing that because blah, 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 sure. blah, you know? And, and now I use that technique all the time. It really creates a, a better atmosphere in the boardroom when the founder just sits there and says, oh, that's an interesting idea. Let me think about that. Because they're not expecting you to say, oh, I will do that right now. 
Sure. So maybe someday you'll take aside some of your founders and give them this avuncular advice. I think it's really important because it puts you as the founder in the mindset of having a beginner's mind. It's okay not to know everything. You're starting a company. You're pioneering an industry, potentially. You are doing something that others have not done before. And that's why your investors put money into your company. And so the beginner's mind, I think that that statement of, I hadn't thought about that. It really puts you in a beginner's mind. And whether you consider it or not, that's where relationships are really thriving when there isn't tension or resistance. I think the larger problem with the boardroom is we're asking the founders to over-identify with being the CEO of that company. And I think, of course, that's what we're expecting them to do. But in asking them to really come to the table as like having all the answers and some board members unfortunately do expect that and they are rude and they interrupt and they try to get their point across and I think it's so unproductive but when I sit there in the boardroom I'm looking at a founder as him or herself not necessarily the person who's running that company only And knowing that they're human really helps with kind of conversations where maybe they don't say what I like, but I try to take, I try to listen more. I try to have trust in them that they, that I've also invested in their strategy and then make suggestions when the time is right. So there's a lot of nuance around this as well. So let's say you're in a board meeting and you have identified either, you know, earlier or at that moment that this company is taking a strategic turn that you really disagree with. Mm. Has that ever happened before? Of course. Okay. So at that point, you have a choice to either be like, I'm going to support you or I'm going to lay down the truth here, my truth. So how do you deal with that? So, you know, we're getting into the juicy stuff. And the reason I think this is really the juicy stuff is because this is what nobody talks about, which is power dynamics. And as you said, this episode will be six hours and 20 (laughs) minutes because you can never get to the heart of the power dynamics of, you know, we signed an investment agreement that says that, you know, I have specific rights in your company. I have information rights. I, you know, gave you the money. And in some, in some situations you actually pay me back at a multiple that's typical in India. There's a buyback already baked into the deal documents. Uh And I mean like a liquidation preference. Uh, no, it actually goes beyond that. It's called a buyback. Oh. Yeah. Oh, it's like a, it's, it's like, like a, a minimum. Yeah. Um, it's a minimum, um, like two to three X kind of baseline of return. Obviously we're looking for more than that, but there's a baseline of return that you could force a company to buy you back after five years. Oh, okay. It's like a mandatory redemption. Yeah. And so, you know, there are all these rights in place and I think it makes everybody really, you know, really, really nervous. And I'm going to admit that I have to decide when to use some of this leverage from time to time. And as I mentioned earlier, I do work for my investors too. And I am a fiduciary of capital. So if, if I have reasonable information that this strategy is you know, an unreasonable pivot or is not going to work out, I will make my voice known. And it is something that I think is important to do because I am stewarding my investor's capital. I'm lucky enough to have that. But there is nuance in how I would do it. So in the past, Ed, I would maybe be a little bit aggressive. I don't think that 
has ever worked out the way I've wanted it to. I think it's maybe, you know, made it clear that this is not the direction I want the company to go, or this is not the thing I want the company to do or the founder to do. But I think it has tarnished the relationship a little bit. And what I, what I really want my founders to know is that we're in this to win together, that this is, a, this is not a zero-sum game where I'm going to win and they're going to lose. And I think by being really upfront, sometimes you risk damaging the relationship. And it depends on the person too. You know, I have founders of all, probably all different personality types. If we were to do, you know, and I think it's called an Enneagram or like disc assessments, I'm sure that they would actually not all fall into the same category. And so knowing who you're talking to is important. So it's hard to generalize this question. It is something where I try to use a little bit more nuance and, and even feeling around the situation. But at the end of the day, I'm protecting our capital. And that's my number one job. I'll never forget our investors were telling me, my two main financial investors were telling me, don't go to Europe, don't open a European office, it's going to be a waste of money. And I ignored them and I wasted three and a half million dollars. Yeah. (laughs) But there were probably times where you were told, do this and you ignored them and you saved three and a half million dollars. Maybe. Yeah. It's hard to quantify that that. one though. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. (laughs) Bang your hands on the table, huh? Yeah. One other area that I think founders actually I've observed could be much better at is stakeholder management. And while I know when you're running a company, it's not easy to call every one of your board members ahead of the board meeting and say, hey, here's what we're going to talk about. Here's why I think it's important to talk about this. Here's maybe a small pivot I'm going to suggest. You know, here's something that's going to be abnormal about our numbers, and I want to give you the background. Because the stakes are so high in the boardroom, everything gets a little bit heightened and elevated, and responses and reactions, I think, sometimes might be more than they need to be if there was just information provided in a healthy way in advance. So I do advise a lot of our founders on manage your stakeholders well. Oh, yeah. Here's a couple rules of thumb. If you're whiteboarding something with your board members in a board meeting, you've already failed. Yeah. And if you surprise your board with anything in a board meeting, you've already failed. And making sure you get the pre-read to them in advance, you know, at least, I mean, a week is best practice, but, you know, three days is is probably okay and most you know for most smaller businesses mm-hmm. i'm on a public company board and that pre-read will come you know a week in advance or something but a much bigger team putting it together it's important to have regular updates especially with your main investors you know i my series b investors in shopatron which was my last major kind of startup that sold they invested in 2007 and all the way up until the exit in 2015 we had a weekly call yeah on fridays mm. 30 minute standing call. And, you know, we canceled it when, you know, we didn't like reschedule it. So if somebody couldn't make it, we'd be like, oh, just skip it or whatever. And I've kept that practice. I kept it at Scoot. I I do it at Demand Q, where I talk to the CEO of Demand Q every Friday for 30 minutes. Wow. And honestly, the investors who were like the hardest working investors, they always were super happy to do it. Like they were like, oh, yeah, 100%. Like, how often do you want it? And I'd be like, you know, usually you go once a week when the deal first closes, maybe for the first year or two, and then you can change the cadence. You know, if you get more new investors, you know, that way you could kind of just save up the news 
for that week and like, oh, you know, we didn't get this contract renewed or we had this outage or this customer is going to cancel or, you know, and that bad news, you want all the bad news delivered before the board meeting. Yes. A hundred percent of it. Yeah. And if you're doing bad news at the board meeting, you are, you're probably, they're probably talking about replacing you. Not because of the bad news, but because of just, you know, being able to manage the dynamics. It's too much to ask to surprise people like that. Sure. And that's, yeah, that's kind of what I always try to advise founders on. And it sounds really simple, but I think if you don't have board experience, it's not intuitive for you to just know that off the bat. You know, one other piece is not only what is the right founder-investor relationship, but what are the different types of founder investor relationships. So, you know, I'm a VC and there are certain things I can't provide. And I think as you pointed out, Ed, earlier, knowing what you can't advise on is a really important piece of being an investor because there are a lot of investors out there and they try to provide, you know, advice in some companies, they just, they just don't need it or they don't want it or they don't have the time for it. And it's good to know when you're being supportive and when you're not. But there are also industry experts who could be an investor in your company. There are exited entrepreneurs like yourself, Ed, who might have... Operators. Yeah, who might have more operating experience who can support you. So I think that there is, there's a spectrum of the types of investors who can support a company. And having a healthy balance of maybe industry experts, operators, and professional investors will add up to success, uh, in my opinion. If you just have VCs, well, I think if you watch We Crashed, you'll see how that all plays out. I never saw that movie. <laughs> oh, it's so good. It's a series. Oh, it is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's fun. It's a fun watch. Right now, I'm watching Love is Blind. Nice. I've kind of taken a break from... Uh, That's trash TV for anyone yeah. who hasn't. <laughs> I've taken a break from TV. Oh, you have? Yeah. Movies too? Yes. Well, as you know, I... All video? I completed the Hoffman process, which is a week-long self-development retreat. Yeah, you reprogrammed your brain. I reprogrammed and rewired my brain. And I, I can't tell you how much I think it will make me a better investor. You can't tell me how yeah. much because it's already it's so, so much. <laughs> or, you don't, or you don't know yet. No, I, I, I really you feel like I gonna... feel it will. Yeah. I mean, and I think it already is paying dividends just in being more empathic as an investor, you know, being more aware, being more aware of what drives founders at specific times, as you said, defensive or reactive. You know, how well, what does what, what watching TV have to do with that? Nothing. It was, I was just, didn't have my phone for a week. So oh. I kind of continued the trend and that was a. You're giving up your phone too? I, I gave, well, no, I'm not nanny longer. <laughs> I got it back. <laughs> so to wrap up, Ed, are there any other tools or resources that you think are really important to get to the heart of this question? About founders and, and investors overall? Yeah. Or tricks that you, you've used or questions that you've asked in your due diligence when you've had investors in your company? Because due diligence can be t- both ways. Yeah. The diligence process has always kind of worked out to be two ways. You know, I've never really had to filter them out. I think it's kind of it was always mutual when it just didn't feel like a good fit. Sometimes as disappointing as that is. I, I would go back to what I said in the beginning. Responsiveness is really important to me. Like I don't want to play games 
you know, if you want to do this deal, if you want to do business, like, why don't we just talk about it and, you know, find a win-win and, and find a way to negotiate partnership that's going to work. Why do we have to play a lot of games and waste a lot of time? So that's one of my main things that I look for. I probably wish I was flashier, you know, a shinier object. There are definitely VCs who like that. But the other thing that probably is the is really the most important thing. And for every investor that has made a massive difference for me, both in the amount that they invested, time, the capabilities, in every case, there was a nearly perfect alignment on the company's strategy. Mm. Kind of, they were willing to go deep into understanding the go-to-market plan, the differentiation strategy, the product strategy. And, you know, that has made all the difference. Like when I closed our $12 million round recently at Scoot, that was at the end of 2022, which is probably the worst year for venture, for new venture investments of any recent memory. Going all the way back to 2001, probably. And I got rejected so many times that year. Oh, Um, wow. You know, especially in the first half of the year until I just started writing the checks myself. But then towards the towards the end of the year, I met my new partner and the strategy alignment was significant. And that allowed us to, you know, in a way you can, you know, the kind of personalities of people, the that's small. Like if you have the same goal as me, yeah. I mean, I can look past almost anything about you. Sure. You know what I mean? Like what so what you how you write, how you talk, like cares yeah you know it's like what how you joke what kind of <laughs> what kind of restaurants you like like i don't care about any of that stuff if i'm trying to grow my business like having the right strategy and an aligned investor is the only thing that matters and i can deal with almost anybody and so then when you have alignment it's just super powerful so those were i just i would mm. say though i would just kind of go back to those original things makes a huge difference to have that strategic go-to-market alignment. Yeah, I agree. And what what we do in our due diligence, in addition to evaluating all of that, what are you focused on? What's your strategy, et cetera? We have a conscious leadership questionnaire that we've developed. And that helps me understand, are you committed to your vision? What is keeping you committed to your vision? Because it's easy, like the incredible CEOs and founders we have on this podcast to, you know, have a big vision. And, but what's great actually about most, all the, the interviewees that we've had, all the guests is they are committed. And so we try to get at that glue actually with a 40 question questionnaire, which I think some founders probably look at and, you know, maybe roll their eyes at at first, but every single founder that fills it out. And it's typically towards the end of our due diligence process. So we wouldn't do it upfront and waste anybody's time says, this has been a great exercise for me to zero in on my vision and why I am doing what I'm doing. Because sometimes you're just doing. That sounds really cool. I have a question for you. Yeah. I've always heard that kind of like there's, there's two kinds of VCs. One's like, we'll bet on the, on the founder, even if we don't really like the, the vision. (laughs) you know, or the product. And there's other ones are like, you know, we're, we like the, the product and, you know, we, we figure we can change out the founder once we're investors in the company. Are you in either of those camps? I think in Africa, it's hard to be in one of those camps only. 
And the reason is there is so much nuance in what is needed to be built right now. This is not just about selling ideas. This is like putting down rails for the growth of a major economy of a continent. Yeah. And so we really need both to be in place because if you're not the right person and we don't like you as a like as a complement to your business model, you're probably not going to be able to stick with it because it's damn hard. I mean, all entrepreneurship is hard. In India, I think it's much easier for us to find a team or a person that we like and trust them because the market is more developed. There's room for kind of like this next generation or 2.0 level of, of ideation and innovation. And you're not just kind of building basic infrastructure. And when I say infrastructure, I'm not talking about like physical infrastructure. I'm talking about like payment methodologies in Africa and, you know, how do you finance uh, supply chains, basic things that we have figured out in the West and, and largely are figured out in India. So I have to look at the market to answer that question, but I'll tell you if I were to make an angel investment and I don't do it very regularly at all, my test is I have to know you really well. Yeah. And then I'll invest in you if I feel comfortable with you as a person and somebody who I think can pull it off. I don't have to know the founder, but I have to know somebody who's in the deal. Right. Who's been in the deal. You know, if I have a good friend who I've been doing business with for 10 years and they're like, hey, I'm in this company, I think it's kind of interesting, then I will go into that. It's not the same as knowing the founder, but it's pretty close. So is it fair to say then on that topic of um, kind of pivoting and stuff that you see more pivots in India than you do in Africa? Yes. Okay. I mean, That's when you're just, a curious, just I, curious about that. When you're building basic infrastructure and we don't do How pre-seed. Do like, yeah, exactly. Like, how do you pivot? There, there are small pivots, but, you know, I think companies can really change shape over time in India. You, I mean, one great example is Lal 10 in our portfolio. It's a really thriving business, B2B, artisan, sourcing. Oh, yeah. And, you know, while, while this is not a big pivot, it kind of is. They originally started with a lot of fashion. Now they're moving to home goods. And then they're, you know, digitizing everything that they're doing. We're fine with all of this, even though some of it was different than our original investment, because they're really the right group to have invested in. And Tell me about a deal you're really excited about right now that you're in, besides well, Lalten. Yeah. Our most recent investment is in a drone healthcare delivery business that, you heard it here first, is building in India for the rest of the world and looking at competitors, which we all might know the name of, and thinking about how they can make their drone better. And they're starting in healthcare because it's a very high cost payload. And I think we've talked about this on the show before, but what I love is that their tailwinds are this make in India strategy, creating innovation from one of the world's largest by population countries and a massive growing economy. And then exporting that technology that is lean and a relatively low burn rate and low kind of cost of innovation out to the rest of the world, where some of their competitors will, were built in really high cost environments like Switzerland or the U.S. And while they were piloted in Africa, there's still a quite a high cost basis. So yeah. that's one that we really like. And it is a, it's a great team that... What's it called? Red Wing Labs. 
How big are the drones? They are... Can they fit a cat? Four feet... If if the cat was kind of squished up, they could fit a cat. But they're... Chopped up. No, no, not not chopped. Just like, you know, put into a yoga pose. Um, It fits like a a small lunch box currently, and they're expanding their capacity. A small cat. Exactly. A kitten. (laughs) Well, this has been an incredibly enlightening conversation. It's always great to hear your perspective. Ed, thank you so much for sharing on what it's like to be a founder, what it's like to be an investor. And I always learn a lot from our conversation. Good times. Thank you. Once again, it's clear that conscious leaders can find a way to put meaning behind the mission of a company in a truly holistic way. And we can all make a difference. You've taken the first step by listening to the Beyond Capital podcast. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to rate, review, And if you haven't yet, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information, go to beyondcapitalpodcast.com. You can follow me at EA Stevens on Twitter. And you can follow me at Conscious Investor on Instagram.